Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 371 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. This episode features Lecrae, the hip-hop artist, and uh, we talk all about, well, what do we talk about? We talk about how he lost his faith when he was on top of the world, finding it again, the anxiety and pressure of life at the top, and overcoming personal trauma. Uh, a lot of leaders have been through a lot of trauma. This episode is brought to you by Red Letter Challenge. For our podcast listeners only, go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash being. They will mail a free copy of their newest challenge, the Being Challenge, directly to you for free. And by International Cooperating Ministries, ICM. Check out ICM's latest report designed to equip you with information on a growing global church by going to icm.org forward slash growing global. Well, uh, man, oh man, I got to tell you, it has been uh, quite the year, hasn't it? And I just want to say uh, it's such a joy to be able to still partner with you. Um, so many of you have joined the podcast, found the podcast. Thank you for your encouragement. Uh, if this episode, and I think it will, if it encourages you, if it inspires you, if it challenges you, and you want to share it, uh, just do so on social. Let Lecrae know that you heard it. Let myself know. I'm Carrie Newhoff on Instagram, C. Newhoff on Twitter and Facebook. So uh, just share it, get the word out. And thank you for leaving ratings and reviews as well. We so appreciate that. And uh, it's a joy to be able to do this together. We uh, also have at the end of this episode of what I'm thinking about segment. And I want to talk about what happens when we lose our minds online. You ever notice like sometimes our social feed gets a little bit crazy? Uh, well, when Christians lose their minds, people lose their faith. So I'll do that in the what I'm thinking about segment at the end. Let me tell you a little bit about Lecrae. Lecrae is recognized as the first artist to have an album debut at number one for both the Billboard 200 and the Gospel Chart simultaneously. He is a multiple Grammy Award winner. He has gained respect for his socially conscious advocacy work and speaks directly into some of the most important conversations facing our nation. His latest album, Restoration, features, uh, well, all kinds of uh, incredible artists, including John Legend. Uh, and he's got a brand new book out today called I Am Restored, How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. He has helped to found and establish the Peace Preparatory Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, and created partnerships with Love Beyond Walls and Masks for the People, which have directly impacted disenfranchised communities. During the COVID global pandemic, he resides with his wife and three kids in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's just been a joy to get to know Lecrae. We ended up in the same green room at an event we were doing together in 2019, really hit it off, started comparing notes about some of the highs and lows of leadership. And uh, it's just great to be able to bring that conversation to you uh, a little bit later on. So I said, hey, would you ever be up for the podcast? He's like, yeah, 100%. So I'm just thrilled you'll find it real and raw. And uh, hey, if you're looking for a way to unify your congregation as you head into, well, a brand new season, you may want to consider the Being Challenge from our friends at the Red Letter Challenge. So the same people who brought you the Red Letter Challenge have put together a brand new 40-day challenge your whole church can go through. It's called the Being Challenge. And what it does is it focuses on the five keystone habits 
of Jesus. So when the disruption came in 2020, new habits were formed by everyone. And the best habits of all, of course, are those that lead you to life. So just like the original Red Letter Challenge, the Being Challenge is a turnkey 40-day church challenge. It's got everything. It's got small group guides. Videos are already done. Your sermons are complete. You can use them, modify them, write your own, whatever. Kids' curriculum's done. Graphics are done. It truly is turnkey. The first wave of churches are going through it right now, seeing great results. Small groups are back up again. Engagement is reaching all-time highs. And social media engagement even increases. And right now, you can get some specials, 10 to 40% off at redletterchallenge.com forward slash being. So that's redletterchallenge.com forward slash being. And if you're a pastor and you want to check it out, but you're like, I don't know if it's right for me, um, because you listen to this podcast, go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash being, request a free copy. They will mail it directly to you. Also, you know, there's so much bad news. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just look at my phone. I'm like, I can't do it anymore. Well, did you know on Sunday, September 6th, just over a month ago, 1,400 new believers were baptized in central Thailand. That actually made my feed. It was really encouraging. Not only is that one of the largest baptism services in the history of that country, those first-generation Thai believers come from one of the least Christianized people groups in the world. And they are just the latest wave in an indigenous movement that has been growing in that country. So maybe that surprises you. Well, believe it or not, stories of explosive church growth haven't been exactly leading the news cycle, but it is happening. And our partner, ICM, International Cooperating Ministries, is in the middle of it. So if your church is committed to missions and you need some good news stories to share with people, ICM has a report that's designed to equip you with the information on trends in a growing global church. It has insights you can share with people in your church who want to know the good news about what's happening globally. You can check it out by going to icm.org forward slash growing global. That's icm.org forward slash growing global. So, so glad you joined us. Um, man, why don't we just dive right into my conversation, the real and raw one with Lecrae. Lecrae, welcome to the podcast. It's such an honor to have you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Hey, uh, so you and I had a chance to meet backstage at an event we did, I think in Dallas last year, Mm -hmm. really hit it off, had a good conversation. And I said, man, it'd be great to have you on the podcast. You got a brand new book, which I actually have read cover to cover. Great book. And in it, you talk a lot about sort of the celebrity journey, um, your relationship with your faith, how you lost it, how you found it. Um, but I want to talk about, because we all, you know, particularly in this Instagram age, everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be well-known. Everybody wants to be recognized. But celebrity has pressures and surprises that I think a lot of people don't see. Can you start just by talking about some of the pressures and surprises you've had with the the celebrity that's come your way? Uh, yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, the... The pressures of celebrity are really, um, some of them are self-imposed. Some of them, I, I think the the biggest thing that I found is that the higher people exalt you, uh, the more they demand of you to kind of fit whatever ideal they have. And when you don't live up to that in whatever respect, then there are a lot more uh eager to tear you down. Um, so we tend to do that. We tend to build up our idols and tear them down uh, just as just as fast. 
So I think I wasn't prepared um, to be praised as much as I was and criticized as much as I was. Hmm. And so in just finding a space to find myself, to be myself, um, I actually talk about that on the album a lot um, where, you know, I just need the space to to process because it, I, there's so many voices um, praising and criticizing all the time. Yeah. Do you think that's true of all celebrities? Do you think, uh, or do you think that's also like especially true in the church? I'm, I'm curious as to your perspective. I think it's, I think it's true of all, every public figure that's going to be true. I, I do think there there's a different expectation when it comes to the church of, of grace and love that you expect people to walk in. You expect a, a certain amount of wisdom grace, love to to be exemplified and, and offered. But I think we're a little harsher toward those in public spaces, if I'm honest. Yeah. So the criticism and the praise were really kind of surprising. Anything else? Like uh, you've been on the road an awful lot. Just describe what road life is like. Uh, I've been off the road now for six months, yeah. like I'm sure you have for the most part. And a lot of people used to travel a lot, but it's very different on the inside, I'm sure than it looks like on the outside. Yeah, I mean, being on the road is, um, you know, initially it's glamorous, it's great. It's like, oh, wow, new cities, new places. Um, but then it it turns into work and it turns mm-hmm. into, you know, uh, make this stop, do this interview, talk to these people, meet these people, perform, and you're, you're going, 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 and you're, you're not really given the space to um, process, enjoy what's happening here. Um, you you know, if you're having a bad day, there's no room for you to have a bad day because you've got to meet people and they're excited to meet you. And so, you know, you you're, you get off the phone with your wife and she tells you your son is acting up. You're like, oh, and I've got to deal with this. And then I've got to shake this person's hand. And in the back of my mind, there's chaos in my house. Um, so it, it's not as glamorous for, a, especially for a married man with kids. Um, it's a lot tougher because you're torn in two worlds at one time, a married person with kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of people, because we think about this, and I know as a preacher myself, you kind of think, okay, the Christian story is a story of before and after. So before you met Jesus, this is what your life was, but now you got it all together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So it's sort of like before I was messed up, but now um, I'd love to get your take on that because you're so honest and so raw in this book about some of the things that uh, just weren't going well in the midst of it all. What do you think about that narrative where it's like all my problems are in the past, but here I am and now things Mm -hmm. are together? Yeah, I think um, I, what was really important to me with the book is chronicling what restoration looks like. Restoration is the journey, not the destination. You know, restoration is something that we're, you know, we're in a marathon and and you win a marathon by finishing it, not by coming in first, uh, not by looking like you're better than this person or that person. And I think, um, you know, that whole narrative, like, man, I was all messed up, and, you know, but then I found the Lord and now I'm better. 
it's true in a spiritual sense. You know, I was dead, now I'm alive. I did a song called Zombie that articulates yeah. just that point, right? I was dead, now I'm alive. But, um, you know, it's like a child coming into this world. You know, you're, you're when a baby enters the world, it's going to take some time to learn how to walk. And when the baby's, you know, when it gets a little older and it starts walking, what's the first thing you do when you see him taking steps? You clap like, good job, good job. <laughs> And when the baby falls, we don't say, you stupid baby, what is wrong with you? Get up and walk. We say, oh, it's okay. Get back up. And then we encourage them to take more steps and more steps. We anticipate that throughout this, this process, the child is going to keep falling. And, and similarly, as believers, we're learning how to walk you know, in a broken world. And we're going to fall. And hopefully we get up and walk further than we did before. But there may be times when, oh, I fell again. It's okay. Get up. Just don't stay down there. Get mm. up and keep walking. Um, and, and maybe you'll take more steps this time than you took before. And that's the narrative that I think um, is, a, is a much more healthier version. In the book, you talk an awful lot about your childhood. And you share some things you haven't really shared before, at least not in that form. You talk about uh, being sexually molested when you were a child, uh, physically beat up, uh, sleeping with a knife under your pillow because you feared for your safety as a child, and um, growing up not really knowing your dad really well. Um, how do those wounds, how do they continue and how do they continue to impact you as an adult? Mm. Yeah, I think... Um and I say this uh, every so often, that there's freedom in confession, but there's suffering in suppression. And I think as you suppress those wounds, as you keep those wounds closeted and you don't address them, they will create um, issues in your life. Uh, th those are traumas that you will have to navigate for the rest of your life in certain circumstances. But you, you, you have an opportunity to allow those traumas um, to cripple you and to keep you in a, a constant state of suppression and like fear, or you can allow those traumas to grow you, to strengthen you, to, to help you to say, you know what, I've endured some, some crazy things and that's, um, that's what's happened to me, you know, in my life. I've endured some crazy things, but those things have shaped me and molded me and, and, and afforded me the ability to move forward, to, you know, to, to, to climb higher heights, to do different things, to trust God, to be more dependent than I was historically. So again, I think pragmatically or practically, um, they affect my, um, they affect my, my sense of security or insecurity, right? Like who am I? Um, so you've, you've got to wrestle with those particular issues and then you've got to really begin to do the work of understanding who you are and whose you are. And I think, whereas the average person may have some identity issues here and there and say, man, who am I? A person who's experienced some traumatic things like that, they may have to revisit that a little more often, you know, because they've got these, these narratives screaming at them. Well, you tell stories about, um, you know, being a kid or a teenager and are you man enough? And uh, I think at one point, did you have relatives who were trying to get you into a fight and betting on you and that kind of stuff? How, how Talk about that. Like how, how did those insecurities chase you into adulthood? 
he, that's that's a that's an interesting uh, component. You know, um, I, I, every culture has ideals, ideals and values. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what may be idealistic for one culture is a value for another. What may be a value for one culture is an ideal for another. So you can take, you know, a, a group of people in the Polynesian islands. Um, it may not be, I, you know, family's a different ideal than a, than a group of people in London, right? There, there may have two different ideals and values of what family should be like. And in my culture, in my community, um, you know, with all of the different issues that plagued our community, there was no time to be weak. You never knew what could happen at any given moment. Um, you're walking down the street with a group of your friends and a guy steps out, takes a bottle and smashes it up against one of your friend's faces and it rips his face into shreds. And you're left there like, what am I supposed to do? You know, and so it's kind of like this environment where you've got to be prepared at any given moment uh, to deal with this with this kind of chaos. So, you know, college. Sure. That's an ideal value. You better be tough. That's a value because you need that in this space. And um, and it was something that, man, I just became frustrated with because it seemed as if, you know, there was no room for the nuance and the dynamic of who I was. It was just stone faced, be tough, be prepared, be ready at all times. And I felt like there was so much more to me that I wasn't able to um, express and unleash. And uh, and I and I crave that freedom. Was music an outlet for you in that respect? I remember there's a moment where I think it was some of your friends were fighting and it's like, but Lecrae, he can rap. That kid can rap, right? Was yeah. was that your like artistic outlet, your nuanced outlet? Absolutely. You know, yeah. that was my my sanctuary. You know, being able to write and just put my ideas and my thoughts um, and express them. You know, I, as I mentioned in the book, my aunt would send me postcards from different places she had traveled. She was a, a um, she taught English in different countries around the world. And so I knew the world was bigger and it would, it would make me say, wait a minute, there's more out here. And I would just write and, and try to express. And then my mother always uh, was a, was an advocate of reading, you know, so just read books and I would escape in these books. Now, mind you, there are bloody Wars going on outside, helicopters swirling around, uh, sirens, and I am lost in a book, you know, mm-hmm. inside the house. Um, because for me, it was like, I know there's a bigger world than what I'm seeing in some kind of way. Um, I got, I have to have an outlet to express, you know, these things that I'm experiencing. Remind me which city you grew up in. What, uh, what so city? I, I grew up in between uh, Houston, Texas, uh, Denver, uh, Southeast San Diego and in Dallas. So, so multiple different places where uh-huh. I'm experiencing all these particular things. But you were yeah. always in a particular neighborhood, you know, grew up right. where things were rough, people right. weren't rich, that whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Grew up on the streets. Um, you talk, uh, 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 there's, there's a certain point, and I, I want to uh, chase a couple of things down you said already. Uh, you mentioned the word insecurity. So you've got tens of thousands of leaders listening. And I know in my own journey, I write about it in one of my books and talking to a lot of leaders. It's something leaders really struggle with, insecurity. Um, was Has that been a battle for you even as your career took off? Like, did you ever get over your insecurity? What was that like for you? 
Yeah, I mean, insecurity, I, I think what what a lot of leaders don't realize is they fuel their insecurities by achieving more. Um, they fuel their insecurities by accomplishing more. Um, what you are, are actually doing are wielding um, false senses of security to yourself. You know, every trophy behind me is is a, a tool I can use to wield on to myself to protect myself against, you know, the 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 darts that aim at my insecurity. And so leaders, look how many followers I have. Look how big my church is. Look at the, look at the, how many people bought my book. All these things are ways you can wield um, a shield around your own insecurity without ever dealing with your insecurity, dealing with the root of it. And so what, what you begin to do is you begin to, to do what God never intended for you to do is create your own sense of security with these inanimate objects or uh, ideals of success instead of recognizing that you have infinite worth and purpose, you know, and, and it was and it was bestowed upon you from birth with every accomplishment you actually begin to bl- blind yourself and numb yourself to the insecurities that you have un- until that fateful day when things don't work out or when someone doesn't like what you said or what you did or buy your book. And then your world begins to crumble. And we see that happen with professional athletes all the time. As soon as they retire, they- they're asking themselves, who am I? Because th- they were shielded from you know, knowing who they truly were. When you look back at your career so far, what would you say was the height for you? Hmm. I mean, on a, you know, kind of on a, um, a, a material level, um, I would say 2013 and 14 on a material level were probably like, this combination of a highlight reel. You know, I, I've continued to, to do things that I hadn't done before, but I think they were just consistently happening during that time period. Um, it was like, bam, number one album, bam, uh, Grammy Awards, bam, uh, Billboard Awards, bam, uh, big artists want to feature you. Bam, speaking at these conferences on massive stages. And it was just all within this like one year span of just like soaring and different opportunities coming at you, you know, uh, doing this world tour that sold out everywhere. And so I think on a material level, that was um, the most successful year. It was, but but on a spiritual level, it was not successful at all. <laughs> We're going to go there. What was that like? Because uh, I've had a conversation with a few people. We've watched uh, a number of leaders implode publicly recently. Mm. And I've just been in some private conversations. And I'm like, well, look at the look at the stratosphere. Like, you know, they went from zero to 60 in 2.5 seconds. And that is so much pressure. What was the, what did that feel like when all of a sudden you're number one, number one record in the world, not in a category, but in the world, you're on the stage in wherever they do the Grammys, I guess it's Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And they announce your name as the winner. Like, what is that like? What does that do to you? You know, back then I could articulate to you that there was an internal battle with 
pursuing humility. You know, there was um, back then I wouldn't be able to articulate that to you. I can tell you that now, like right. there was an internal battle with pursuing humility. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I just was like, what is happening? Because it, right. I didn't I didn't know, you know, I didn't know any better. I, I went to the mall and bought a suit to wear to the Grammys. I didn't you know, it's like I, it wasn't tailored. I don't know what is. <laughs> What is going on right now? Um, when they called my name, I was not, I didn't think I would win it. So, yeah. so there was a sense of um, like, what is happening right now? Um, and, you know, there was an internal wrestle with, okay, how, how do I pursue humility and yet be appreciative and and I didn't know what those emotions were at the time. I know now that's what I was battling. Uh-huh. Um, but you're trying to process, how do I stay down to earth? How do I stay connected? You know, my friends, I, I felt like the air started changing around me and different conversations were happening. And it was like my friends couldn't. It's like, hey, man, I, I got to go talk to this person about this deal. And they're like, deal? What do you mean deal? Like, aren't we playing basketball? And I'm like, I can't man, I got to talk to, you know, Dr. Dre and Pharrell are on the phone. And it's like, what? There's all, you know, these massive things. And my friends are just like, this is, I don't understand. Why are people screaming your name? What mm. What is going on here? Because you've been um, Lecrae to them for years, right? It, exactly. Exactly. So, so it was a mixture of me trying to walk in these new shoes and them trying to figure out what these shoes were. And just trying to, you know, it's a lot to just process. No, it's a lot to process. And all of a sudden, I think that's another thing that can happen. And, you know, we got a number of leaders listening who are in high growth environments right now. Maybe it's not number one record in the world, but it's like all of a sudden it's five times, 10 times bigger than it was. Your friends change in a moment like that. Maybe you hang out and you're still playing basketball with the guys you've known since you were 16 uh, on the one hand, but all of a sudden Pharrell and Dr. Dre call and all these artists want to feature you and producers are interested. Uh, can you talk about that and what that was like in mm-hmm. that moment when all of a sudden your phone starts ringing and you're like, you got to be kidding me? Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure I, where where I got the analogy, but there was, a, there was an analogy that I remember of, you know, when you start off with your team, because I started off with my home team and everyone around me helped me get to this place. And, um, and you start off with your team and you guys are all playing golf, you know, it's like a golf game and everyone t- hits the ball. You're having a good conversation. And then it's like, all right, it's, things are getting a little more intense in this basketball now. And is, everyone still touches the ball. You know, we're still all on the court, but maybe some people shoot a little more than others, you know, um, but then you just hit this plateau, this this peak, and it's football. And it's like, you know, your cousin who's been with you playing golf the whole time is like, hey, can I play? And you're like, ah, I just need someone to kick. And you're not really a good kicker. So uh, this is rough because now you need all these specialized people around you. And if you don't know how to transition, which I didn't know, had to transition well from that kind of friendly game of golf to like this specialized football. Um, it is rough relationally. It is tough to navigate, you know, that type of growth and that type of stretching. And so it took a lot of intentional conversations, a lot of processing with people. And, and there was some shrapnel, you know, people were hurt in that process as well. 
Well, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's I've never heard that analogy, and I'm glad you shared it. But there's that saying that the you know what got you here won't get you there, right? Mm. And I think that's such a typical leadership journey where. Uh, when it was the six of you going for lunch in that booth at your favorite restaurant and you were going to be together no matter what. And then things really take off and this guy leaves and you got to let this guy go. And next thing you know, it's a whole different crew of people. Any any advice for leaders, knowing what you know now, because that was like Mm -hmm. six years ago, how would you replay that? Would you replay any of that relational weirdness differently? Yeah, I think um I think I would you you have to measure the the connections because everyone has this idea that every connection is relational or every connection is transactional and I think you have to temper that and you have to understand the dynamic of who you're dealing with and what that can potentially be. And so I'm very upfront with people when I feel like, hey, this is a contractual relationship and not a covenantal relational type of deal. Mm-hmm. I'm very upfront and I'm, I, I don't want to give off the idea or the vibe that we're going to be holding hands walking down this plane together. Um, and just not in, a, not in a rude way, but just not trying to sell anyone on the idea that, hey, you know, we're going to go on this long journey, but just being honest and saying, hey, um, you know, I, I, I don't know how this is going to go. I, I love what I've seen here. Let's try this out. Let's see this and we'll meet back up to see how this goes. And then gradually kind of uh, pulling them into a, seeing if this is a more relational in, interaction. Um because that that that's ultimately what causes a lot of the problems is that you've developed these these deeper kind of friendships with people that you're you're in a on a contractual journey with yeah. and um and so that's tough you know what i mean it's tough i mean obviously we want to you want to love everybody and, and you want to treat everybody fairly of course um but at the same time i i have to let you know uh the guy who comes to fix my sink no, like, hey, man, I just just want you to know, I don't, I don't know if you're going to be the same guy that's going to come next time I see you. <laughs> right, you know, right. just you the, might be a second understand, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. So just making yeah, sure you're that not those in the things band. are understood. You're exactly. just going to play on this track. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. that's good. And I would say the other thing I've learned too is that people sometimes come in for a season, and that's okay. Have you seen right. that in your life? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and 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 seasons that's not a, that's not a bad thing. Right. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not a bad thing that they're in your life for a season. I mean, that, that they're there for a specific reason and a, and a specific goal and you accomplish that goal together. And man, you, that's what, that, that was the point and the purpose of your connection. So you do talk about that season when you hit number one in the world, when you won the Grammys. And uh, I think the quote is at the height of your fame, uh, from the book, uh, but you also said, and this is a quote, my life was a wreck. Disaster. Talk about that disconnect between reaching the pinnacle and at the same time going, oh my gosh, I'm imploding. Mm-hmm. What was going on? So, so number one, I mean, if you have unresolved historical trauma in your life, um, that's going to come for you, you know, um, under stress. 
um, because if you didn't, if you never developed healthy coping mechanisms as a kid, um, or just even as an adult, when you're under stress, you're not going to have healthy coping mechanisms. And so what had happened for me was just not having developed those skills, um, not having dealt with a lot of those issues. Um, I did not have healthy coping mechanisms. So I, I would I liken it to, you know, there's a speedboat, there's a raft, there's a sailboat. And a speedboat leader is somebody who's just going to power through. Like, I'm just going to power through this ocean. And you're not realizing that, yes, you have all this power and, in, 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 you know, this propensity to just go far and fast right now. But you have not prepared yourself for running out of gas and you're going to run out of gas eventually. And so, you know, I ran out of gas like a speedboat and and, you know, it's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And of course, you have other people out there who are rafts and they're just like, I don't know where I'm going. And I'm just out here floating. And, and typically you look at those people and you say, look at those people. They have no direction. They don't know what they're doing. They're just out there aimlessly. That's why they're not leaders. And look at you now when you run out of gas. You're just like them. Oh, wow. You're just like them. So true. You, you did not have a plan. And so the the ideal way that I, you know, that you deal with that is you have to be, be a sailboat. And a sailboat, um, you know, you're prepared for... The, the different directions that the wind may blow. You're prepared. You have your sail like, okay, this is going to be a, a good one here. We can take uh, we can take advantage of this wind going in this direction and we're not going to be stuck here. Um, you know, it, and, and it's just, you're more, you're, de- you're understanding the environment and the volatility of everything around you and you, and you're prepared for what's, what's coming your way. And so um, I think that is what I've had to learn, you know, over the years is that, man, you've got to deal with your stuff and you've got to find preparation because it's coming. You know, if you're dependent on yourself and just you're you're going to run out of gas eventually. You're pretty raw in the book. And so your speedboat runs out of gas, so to speak, in 2014 ish. What were some of your coping mechanisms that kind of got out of control? What were some of the things in your life that you're like, wow, I can't believe this is me? Yeah. So, so first, first of all, firstly, it was, you know, start subtly. It's not like a, it's not like, I can't deal with all this. Give me something to help. It's subtle. It's, it's kind of like, what a long day at work. Let me have a beer. Right. You know, it's like, I mean, what a long day. Let me have a beer. Well, when every day is a long day, then I need a beer every day. And then one beer is not de- helping me deal with the different levels of stress because I'm not just working one job. I'm I'm running a company. I'm running. I have multiple irons in the fire. So I need a beer for every job I have going on here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that began um, not a kind of sloppy drunk dependency it just it just my body became adjusted to this is what always takes my edge off so so i need a little more i need a little more i need need something harder something you know give me a shot of this give me two shots now and my my tolerance level would just go up 
And when you're on the road for 20 days and you need to decompress after everything, it's like, man, hit me with another one. And what, what begins to happen is you develop a dependency on that, that uh, decompressant, that, that, that thing that helps you decompress. And you look up and you're like, I've been drinking for 20 days straight and I didn't even notice it. Hmm. And you look up and you're like, it, I'm, it's not, you're numb to it now. It's a old, fact, old factory fatigue. Like you don't even smell it, you know? So it's like, this is normal. Of yeah, course we're going to get on. Absolutely. I'm going to get on the flight, have a drink. I'm going to do this, have a drink. And I didn't think I had a, a problem because it never showed itself as like this overt issue. Um, but I did notice that, um, you know, just my judgment would be impaired. So I, it was easier to make bad decisions. Um, it was easier to swipe the card uh, on something I didn't need after a few drinks. And it's, it's easier to, to be upset and be mad, you know, at somebody and have a terrible conversation with my wife. It's easier to get wrapped up, you know, in flirtatious behavior or, or pornography. It's way easier when you're, you're um, you know, you're, you're, in, you're intoxicated and you, you know, you're, you're ready to your myopic in your view of like what you need in that moment. Um, so, uh, you know, make a long story longer. Um, I, I, it, it then became, I'm stressed out and I know it and I don't know what to do with it. And I had a, I had a crazy anxiety attack at um, a basketball game. So I'm at a best first anxiety attack I've ever had. I was at a basketball game and um, I'm sitting there waiting on my, my food. My wife is sitting there with me and uh, a fan says, hey, Lecrae. And I'm like, ha, ha, ha. And, and I began to be on edge all the time. Like someone's going to say something, jump out. Lecrae, Lecrae, you know, I just, I don't have a piece. I know someone's mm-hmm. going to want a picture, recognize me. And this person did that. And I was like, hey, okay. And I couldn't calm down. And I was like, whoa, I, I can't calm down. Like I'm, I'm still on edge. Like, what is this? This is weird. Um, so when it wouldn't leave, I went to see a doctor and they, um, the doctor was like, you know, Hey, listen, try this Xanax and, uh, and you know, it should, it'll, it'll, it'll calm you down. And, um, and that turned into another addiction. You know, mm-hmm. we all know about the opioid epidemic and benzos and so on and so forth. So it was like, I just, you know, uh, married two terrible spouses at one time <laughs> in this season of my life. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So you got that. And again, it's a prescription and issue. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're addicted to that. You got alcohol. Did you have people around you who started to notice the changes who spoke mm-hmm. into that or was it a self-realization or how did you kind of wake up and go, Hmm, maybe that's an issue. So, so the, the unique part about that was, during this time period, there was, you know, kind of a, a lot of the triggering for this was a lot of the racial tension going on in America. And um, and so that added an immense amount of stress to everything else I was dealing with. So it wasn't just like all oh, work stress. You know, I've been dealing with work stress for 12 years by, at this time. It was compounded work stress with 
crazy amounts of criticism, seeing people dying, dealing with the racial issues in society and trying to process it all within just all these different spheres of life. So a lot of my friends, particularly my 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 African American friends were were grieving. A lot of them were were struggling. A lot of them were um in pain. So I think it was kind of like an ex- it was accepted. It was like we understand. You had another you had a little extra to drink tonight, but we know times are tough. You know what I mean? And so it was it was a little bit accepted. I mean, it was a little side eye like you all right? Yeah. I'm good. Okay. All right. Just Checking on just you. Checking. Yeah. Yeah. Just checking on you. Um, but no one. And, and then you got to remember. I'm at the top of the food chain. So people aren't aren't they don't tell you. You're no paying a lot often. of these people. Right. Like, let's exactly. be honest. <laughs> yeah. So, you, you know, no one's no one's telling you, you know, they're like, well, you know better what to do than I know you. You made it. So what do I know? Yeah. Wow. Uh, You do, and I'm so grateful for it. You talk about um, the challenges of being black in America, the legacy of slavery. And I thought you made some really interesting points. So let's go there. How has, I I think this is a phrase I lifted directly from the book, the legacy of slavery impacted you here in the 21st century as someone who is honestly near the top of the food chain? Like how how Mm -hmm. does that still impact you? It's a good question. so, you know, when you look at um you look at a company like Johnson and Johnson or even the Rockefellers, Rockefellers, we see the work that the Rockefellers put in initially directly impacts the current Rockefeller family. Um it benefits them currently. So the inheritance passed down and now you know, they can move forward in different ways and, and do different things, right? Conversely, um, <laughs> when you have, so so it's crazy as my, my, my three times great grandmother, Emmeline, was brought here from West Africa, uh, nine years old. She's a slave. And, um, you know, her, she, she becomes an adult, has my two times great grandmother. And they say, hey, slavery's over. Slavery's slavery's done. Well, that's awesome, except they didn't have any land, money. They couldn't read. They didn't have any resources. Any They had nothing. So they were literally faced with two options. One, to live on the side of the road um, with the, the clothes on their back. Or two, to take an opportunity to still work the land in Arkansas for their former slave master um, and not get any payment for it, just be able to stay in their slave quarters. So if you work my land, you can stay in my slave quarters and we'll work out this agreement. And so they did that. And eventually, so now we go to my great grandparents, Bishop Bryant, he's able to secure um you know, through side jobs and little things like that, he's able to secure a little bit of a financial foundation to buy, to purchase a home. And, um, you know, you get to my grandmother who, in order to help keep up that home, had to quit school at 13. So her education level is 13 year old. To my mother, 
who's got a mom with a 13-year-old education. And she's like, I don't know much about school or college or any of this. My mom's eating dirt to keep her stomach from growling. And my mom is like, all right, Lecrae, you, you're the first one. You did it. Don't let us down. And I've got all of that weight sitting on my shoulders to be like, all right, here we go. Let's figure this out. Let's do this for the generations before me and after me. And, uh, and so that legacy, oh my goodness, is impactful, is weightful, weighty. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. It was a very emotional story. And yeah, uh, yeah I, I hadn't quite seen it that way, that, that legacy. It's like, wow, you're the first one. You're the first one to kind of escape, so to mm-hmm. speak, this mm-hmm. chain. And um, I think a lot of us who didn't have that background. So if I can go back a generation or two, I did do a degree in history that arrangement yeah. where you're either at the side of the road or you can live here, that was sharecropping. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. So basically slavery in another form. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about race and America or um, get a lot of leaders listening, obviously yeah. some black and brown leaders, but a lot of white leaders sure. too. talk to us. Yeah. I think, I think it's, you know, the the current environment that we're in, I think, lends itself to um, people being listeners and learners. You know, it, it lends itself to, to us. This is the temptation for leaders. Leaders are really good at doing things on the fly. Leaders are really good at cliff notes. Um, as it pertains to race or ethnicity, we're talking about cultures now. You can't do cliff notes on cultures, right? You can't just, re- you can't like read the cliff notes on India, get there and expect to understand what's happening. It doesn't work that way. So you've got to become a practitioner. You've got to get involved in these relationships. You've got to spend some time in India and like, okay, let me understand this and understand that, oh, that's why this is this and that is that. And so as it pertains to race and ethnicity and culture in America, um, I think it's very idealistic for us to think that American culture somehow blankets us. We're not, we're not the gumbo we think we are. You know, we're more like a salad. You know, there's... <laughs> <laughs> clumsy pieces all over the place. And, um, and so it, it does take some investigation. It takes some, some listening. It takes some saying, okay, what do black and brown people have to say? How can they teach me? And, and what can I learn? I can't do cliff notes. And the temptation is to virtue signal and to say, well, look at who I have on staff mm-hmm. or look at who I have in the room. I'm a part of the solution. Well, you're a part of the solution when you begin to practice the the relational um, steps, you know, of getting to understand these cultural dynamics. And so um, that's just a lifelong journey. That's not something we're going to get overnight. Um, it's a lifelong journey. I have to deal with that as a man and, and as it pertains to women. It's a lifelong journey for me to understand, you know, the differences that women experience in this world and in this society. And I can't just say, well, I'm, I'm married to a woman. I got it. I know what I'm doing. I got it figured out. 
I've got to say, no, this is a lifelong process. So one thing that would have been really interesting, and I'm just going to ask the question, I don't know where it leads, but you would have had, knowing a little more of your history now, you would have had doors open to you that never would have opened for your mom, your dad, who you didn't really know, your, your forebears. Mm-hmm. What was that like when, for the first time, you're like, I can't believe this door is opening and I'm out of the neighborhood. Like, I'm like, this is for me. Yeah. What was that like for you? Yeah. Um, it was, it's scary. Mm-hmm. And, and, and honestly, you live in that fear. It doesn't go away. You're constantly thinking poverty is about to come on you. I'll never forget sitting with my financial advisor and, um, you know, I had just made more money than anybody I knew in all of my family. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, oh God, I'm going to lose it all. It, it just made me afraid. And he said, well, typically when you, you, you reach this level, you don't, you never go backwards. And I was like, you don't, cause I don't have any experience. I don't know how this works. You know, this is all news to me. So it was, it's fear. It wasn't a sense of like, we made it. Yay. It was <laughs> yeah. like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. How am I going to stay here? How am I going to, how am I going to keep, keep everything afloat? Um, and so, you know, I've, I've had to teach myself to celebrate more. I've had to mm-hmm. teach myself to stop, reflect, appreciate, um, be grateful way more than I, than I ever have uh, in the past. I want to give you another quote from the book. The more you step away from your blackness, the more the majority culture accepts you. Mm-hmm. You comment mm-hmm. on that? Yeah. So when we say, so let, let me, we got to define some terms because I'm sure people will hear that and not quite understand all those terms. Um, so first let's, let's talk about majority culture. When we say majority culture, um, we're talking about the, con- the, the culture who has control, um, the dominant controlling culture, because I mean, typically you may say, well, there's more Hispanics than white people in America at some point, and, you know, but it's really about who has the power. So when, when you look across the board, when you look across all the Fortune 500 companies, who is in charge? Um, when you look across, you know, the, the wealthiest people in our country, who are they? Um, and that and therein you're going to see like, OK, this is majority culture here. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and in America, that's, that's white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say blackness, we have to understand that the, uh, this color, we're not really referencing color, we're referencing culture or ethnicity. Cause I think some people think it's a skin thing. It's, be, it's, it's connected to skin, but it's way deeper than that. And so when I say blackness, what I'm talking about are those, those things that are usually culturally associated with people with this skin color, right? Yep. Fair enough. Um, okay. So, so no, and I've had this I, conversation with a few other people too. Like Albert Tate has talked about it on this podcast. Uh, Sam Collier's yeah. talked about it, that there is a way to fit in and yes. we will accept you if you tick these boxes and do these things. So that's why Absolutely. I was really taken by that quote. Absolutely. And, and so the more you let go, of the things that are your cultural norms and embrace 
what the dominant culture, the, the culture who's structuring your society, the more you let go of your cultural norms and embrace theirs, the more they accept you, the more they tolerate in some senses. But so, so an example would be, um, you know, I'm a black man. I don't, I do not, I have not, probably will not ever be a Seinfeld fan. I'm just, it's no offense to Seinfeld. I just didn't grow up watching Seinfeld. Fair enough. Uh, um, <laughs> so I may be missing out on something. Um, <laughs> My wife would say you are, but that's okay. You keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, it, but if I'm in a corporate setting and, you know, it's a group of white men who are having a conversation about Seinfeld in, in, in jest, there's an expectation that I should know about this and appreciate this. Mm-hmm. And if I and and if I want to talk about the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, then it's kind of like, ha ha. I did catch an episode. Love Will Smith, right? If I want to talk about Martin Martin Lawrence's show, it it ha ha. And so, you know, those are these those things. If you can let go of that and embrace more of this, let go of Fresh Prince and embrace more Seinfeld, you'll be more accepted here. You'll be it'll it'll go better for you here. Um, And so, typically, what people what what people of color do, black people, in my experience, is we code switch. What I did is you, you switch the code. Let me change the channel, put on my assimilated black person, and turn off my full black person. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. As a guy who doesn't really follow sports, I can totally relate to that. Because mm. you get around all the mm-hmm. football guys and they're like, well, you saw the college draft. I'm like, <clears throat> just don't say anything. Just smile. <laughs> smile. Look nice. Right. Yeah. I right. have no idea what yeah. you're talking about. But yeah. uh, that's really helpful. Now, you had, um, you talk about church hurts are the worst hurts. And um, there was a period where you were really into reformed theology. And you talk about that in the book. And you kind of got, got burned on that one. Do yeah. you want to go through what that dynamic was like for people? Because we see this, this is like my social media feed all day long, people arguing with each other. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you kind of like got really into it and then they dropped you. What, yeah. what was that? Man, you know... I, I think, um, you know, when you are, when you, when you're someone with historical traumas, like I have, you know, wanting acceptance, wanting, lacking your father being in your life, um, you're clamoring for whatever that looks like. And I think what I found specifically like within the church community was like, Hey, you don't have to fight for that anymore. We're your family now. And I was like, awesome. I have this family now. And to, you know, it's almost like a a child who's been adopted and you're like, this is my new family. This is awesome. And then, and then you, you, one day you say, Hey, what happened to my parents? And like, let's not talk about that. We don't want to talk about what happened to your parents. We're just focusing on this new family, this new world right here. But, but what I can't, I mean, but what, my parents, like, can I know anything? We're not talking about your parents. And you, you feel this sense of like, but they're a part of, they're part of who I am. And this is why I'm here. And this is the, 
I mean, I appreciate, you know, you, but I'm just saying this is a part of me. And to be dropped by your adoptive parents is like, wow, did you ever love me? Did you ever love me in the first place? That's what it felt like. Oh, man. Oh, man. Hmm. You uh, referenced the book, The Body Keeps Score a few times. Mm-hmm. And I want to get back into that period in 2014. And I know when you and I uh, met last year, uh, I we were ended up talking about depression. And I mm-hmm. think you reference it as you kind of went through this period of depression and everything. How did your body keep score? And then talk about sort of the dark night of the soul that you went through, Lecrae. Yeah, you know, the, your body keeping the scores, essentially our minds tell us you know, you 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 got an, uh, you had an altercation, or you know, maybe you got you went through a nasty divorce. And your mind is like, well, that was ten years ago. I've moved forward, but your body, whatever emotions that you felt, whatever stressors, whatever you, essentially your brain chemistry, your your brain has not just forgotten about that. Right. You, you have told yourself that was forever ago, but your body chemistry is like, no, 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 no. That has altered us. Mm-hmm. And now we are constantly, we don't forget that. You know what I mean? So um, it's like a bad injury. It, you may say it 10 years ago, but your leg is still messed up from that injury. So <laughs> that's that's ultimately what it was. And so for me, a lot of my historical traumas, um, because I hadn't dealt with them. When you go to sleep at night, um, your eyes, REM sleep, your eyes move back side to side. What that's doing is your brain is actually um, processing and reconciling everything that you've gone through. And, and I had not had that reconciliation of, of the soul, so to speak, of all of those particular traumas that I had had. And so um, I just distinctly remember uh, the breakdown. I remember the, the stress. It was, it was kind of like a build up, build up, build up. It, it'd be like, you know, the stress of not living in a, not being able to reconcile who's real, who's not real. What's up, what's down. I'm stressed out about this. And then just saying, man, I'm throwing it all to the wind. I don't know what I believe anymore. And I'm moving how I want to move. Well, now your moral compass is off and you're wondering, is this wrong? Is this right? Did somebody see me on this website? Did somebody not? And, and you're thinking, you know, adding all these things. So for me, what it ended up happening was those many panics, many wonderings and many stressors culminated and just came to a head after a a long night of drinking. And I woke up and I was like, whoa, what a night. Ooh, I still feel kind of groggy. This is weird. What is this? Wait, what is this feeling? Wait, this this won't go away. This is like a fog. And it was like this, this fog that wouldn't allow me to, to tell how beautiful the trees were or the sky was blue. It was just a darkness that sat on me. And I could not shake it, you know, and so I that's, know all that about was, that. 
<laughs> you know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't like a long night of drinking, but it was a morning with the sun was there, but I couldn't see it. How long couldn't did that last for you, Lecrae? Oh, boy. Um, sheesh. I think, you know, it was kind of on and off. Like my what my brain would do is kind of have these like, and we're back. And then right. it was like, I'm normal. And then it would, like someone shut the power back off again. So, um, man, I think that happened for a good, um, from a good, a good two to three months, you know, in that space. And, uh, and it was dark. And, and even on, on month three, as I, as I'm crawling out of it, it wasn't overnight. It's kind of, it's kind of like month three happened, but you know, you have to deal with the the fear of going back there, which could take you back there because you're oh, so that afraid. that took me years to get over that fear <laughs> that I was going to go back. Like Exactly, exactly. So, so I'm now probably 18 months removed from that day. And I, I now have to battle the anxiety of going into a depression. And that's the crazy part. So that's the part of the, what the work that I've had to do over the years. Are you hypersensitive yeah. to anything that you think might lead you back there? I remember almost like almost like a trigger. If I got like tired because I didn't sleep well, or there was a time zone change, or it was just a really busy period at work. Now, so I'm 12 years on the other side, 13, 14 years on the other side of my burnout. But like for about five or six years, I was like, if anything felt like that or reminded me of that, I almost went into this like hyper vigilant state of I can't go back because you lose control, right? Uh, you lose control when you're depressed like that. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I, I definitely try not to think about it. I try not <laughs> to think about that that time period. Um, that's 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 been a part of it. Um, obviously, um, the, um, I think the scarier part, it, mine was this weird combination of acute anxiety and depression. So it was this weird combo, uh, where, you know, the acute anxiety made me very, um, agoraphobic and afraid to be around people and, and I was freaking out and just didn't know what, what was going on. So so it is that combination of like, man, if I don't get enough rest, I'll be anxious. And what does that anxiety lead to? It leads to a panic attack. What does that panic attack lead to? It leads to depression. And mm -hmm. I was like, I don't. And so it's this whole cocktail. Um, but I've, I've, I've done this process, which I think is phenomenal. I, I highly recommend it um, uh, called um, EMDR. And uh, it's where they use stimulators, whether it's light or sound or motions to do the work you're supposed to do when you're asleep in reconciling everything mm -hmm. that you've experienced. So it's used for trauma. Um, and the best way I could describe it is that there's a woman who was um, robbed at gunpoint, a gun was pointed to her head and um, she survived. But now every time she looks over her right shoulder, she sees a gun and freaks out. Well, she did EMDR and that process helped her to reconcile it. So little by little now she can look over that shoulder. She sees like speckles, but she doesn't see a person with a gun. She knows something's there, but it's, it's not what it was and she's able to function. And I think that's kind of what happened for me 
is I know this all happened, but I can process it and talk through it. If you don't know the answer to this next question, we'll Google it and put it in the show notes. Do you know what EMDR stands for offhand? I don't. I do not. Man, it's a therapy. It's like a trauma therapy. Yes. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll just put it in the show notes. So we'll figure that out. Now, that was also a faith crisis for you, which is sort of the the center of the the book, I Am Restored. And Lecrae, you know, as well as anybody listening to this podcast, this is an era of a ton of deconversion stories. And as I'm getting to know you and read through your story, you could have been number 1,086 on the deconversion story. Talk about how you lost your faith and then how you kind of reconstructed it because you would consider yourself a Christian, you would consider yourself a person of faith, uh, but it's a different kind of faith maybe than you had a decade ago. So walk us through that, the deconversion and the reconversion. Yeah, I I mean, that's why I call the book I'm Restored. I think it was more like my faith was was restored, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, what essentially... You know, and I know there's lots of different philosophies or theological perspectives on this. Um, I I think that I went through. I think I let go of God, but He never let go of me. <laughs> and so I think that is ultimately what happened. It's that I can say I don't. I don't believe this stuff, and and God was like, "It's too late." <laughs> <laughs> It's too late. You're already you're already a part of this family, buddy. There's no way out of this. Um, so, <laughs> what essentially was happening for me was um, I I experienced so much church hurt, so much trauma dealing with people within the church. I I I had no other vantage points of what faith looked like outside of this context. That I said I want nothing to do with it. You know, um, and it's ironic because it wasn't like I visited, you know, a Korean church and was like, you know, when I said I was done with the church, I wasn't, I hadn't been to all the churches in the world. So (laughs) have I been to all of them? You're done with them all? (laughs) You know, it's like, well, no, but my experience is enough for me to say I'm done with it. And so I didn't imagine that my experience was a context. I just thought my experience was the experience. And so clearly if God is allowing all of this turmoil and pain and rejection from these people that I looked up to and that I, I consider family, then he's not real because they're telling me I'm crazy for bringing up these, these inconsistencies. And so either I'm crazy or they're crazy, but there's more of them than me. So I said, Oh, this is a cult. I don't believe this is, this isn't real. (laughs) And I was done with it. Now, what I will say is this. I can't say this for everybody, but for many people behind the decision to turn your back on God, oftentimes is a a desire for some sort of um, personal freedom, whether it's hedonistic, whether whatever it is, there's some sort of undergirding thing that you were hindered from having if you were consistent with this following of God. So maybe- I think that's a very astute observation. Yes. There's always that. It's like, I really want to love money, but he hinders me from loving money if I'm really serious about my faith. But if he's not real, 
I get to love money. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you, you know, for me, there was that coupled with the pain and the turmoil. There was that sense of, I want to be mad at folks. I want to be angry at them. I want to hate them. Um, I, you know, just being, just being candid, my wife, who's amazing, she's wonderful. But I was like, shoot, I'm a superstar. What if I was single? What would that look like? You know what I mean? <laughs> what, what, who, who, you know, who else could I date out here? You know, what celebrities could I, you know, people get remarried to celebrities and all these, these thoughts of what could be if God is not real. Cause then I'm not bound by these moral obligations. So all of that was, was coupled in there as well. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I said, well, I'm out. And I told my friends because I, I, I wasn't passive aggressive about it. I was like, man, I don't think this stuff is real. And they thought, oh, you're going through a phase. It's fine. You're, you'll be all right. You'll, you'll work through this. And I was like, I don't think so. I told my wife, I said, I don't believe this stuff anymore. I'm not doing Bible study with the kids. I'm just, I don't know what I believe right now. And, uh, and that was a very traumatic time in oh my, my family. Yeah. It was very difficult. No, it was like, what is he going to do? And what? What are the rules? What rules do we abide by? Because when you, when you come together under this idea of faith, there's at least a standard that you both kind of agree to. Well, if one person is like, I don't really have a moral standard, moral compass. So can I, how can I discipline children? I can discipline them whatever way I see fit. I don't know. What, what's the moral standard here? You know, so, so that was a really tough time. And, and I wrestled with these philosophical questions and I, and I wasn't, lazy. I studied and I tried to figure out and I was like, who are you, God? And where are you, God? And, and the reconstruction or the restoration of my faith um, was, a, was an, a process of one, going to Egypt, seeing that this, you know, God is dealing with hit, a, a, a historical narrative way beyond my little 500 years in America. Um, and I saw some amazing things there. And then it just continued from there. Going to can, can you tell that little story, if you remember it? I don't want to put you on the Egypt. spot about the tour guide oh, in yeah. Egypt. Yeah, that was so, awesome. So we're in Egypt. And, um, you know, I'm there trying to restore my marriage. I'm there trying to battle with everything that I have going on. And um, I said, if I'm going to hear... I really didn't go to hear from God. I, I just came like, I didn't, I wasn't, I was like, God, show me something. If you're real, I don't know, but show up, you know, I mean, I'm here. And we went on a tour. We get to, um, you know, the, these, these tombs and we're going through the tombs and we're seeing all these ancient Pharaohs and, and our tour guide, you know, she's a, she's a, a Egyptian history expert. She's brilliant. Um, not a Christian at all, and shows us this particular pharaoh. She's like, oh, this guy, he's frowned upon. That's why he doesn't, there's not much about him and there's no monuments or anything about him. And I was like, why is he frowned upon? And she said, uh, oh, because he let so many of the slaves go. And I was like, she let the slaves, he let the slaves go. Like, you mean like, like Moses, like, She's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm saying like in the Bible, the Pharaoh let all the slaves go. She's like, I don't know. 
I don't know the Bible, but this Pharaoh let all of the slaves go and he's frowned upon in Egypt. And I said, now listen, I don't know if this is historically accurate or connected, but it's enough evidence for me <laughs> to come. It was like God saying, now, do you want to come back or no? Do you, <laughs> you know, I'm extending my hand to you. And that began my, my restorative journey with God. Um, how is it, it going to be different moving forward for you? Like, this is, I think, a defining moment for the church. And I think we're being called out on our judgmentalism, our cancel culture, where if you don't exactly fit what I believe, you're done, you're banished. I would love to know sort of your vision and your heart for the restored or reconstructed Christianity that you are a part of. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, for me, it's, it's understanding that Everybody has something to offer. Hmm. And I think that's what we fail to realize is that, you know, everyone has something to offer. You don't have to fully agree with this particular view, this particular view, but there's something in there that you may, uh, that, that may be God endorsed and helpful. And, um, and I think we have to be okay with, with that is saying there may be something here. Um, we are a cancel culture and we will say, man, if you don't get it all right, then nothing you have to say is worth hearing. You know what I mean? Um, and, I, and I think that is very opposite of what God calls us to be. He doesn't call us to cancel. Hold accountable. Accountability culture, sure, not cancel. Hmm. Um, and what, will, what has changed for me, honestly, is that it's been cultural context. I think that is a huge problem for us in America because we forget that we live under a particular cultural context that reads into everything that we see with that uh, Western cultural context. The, the scriptures were written in an Eastern world, an Eastern context. Things don't mean the same thing. And so uh, just a little small example. Um, you know, there's a verse that, that talks about their, their throats are an open grave. Mm -hmm. And um, and I remember reading that in my kind of American Western cultural context of thinking of a graveyard, like, oh, it's like a graveyard. So it's like an open grave. And I'm just imagining, you know, like, I guess, you know, you can fall in that hole and that's what it's like, you know, and I'm reading my cultural context into that, not realizing that when it was written, it was talking about tombs where there were no coffins it was just bodies wrapped in linens and so if the grave was open it would smell horrendous the the idea they're trying to give across is that their throats stink what's coming out smells it's foul and if i don't understand that i miss so much so that's what's happened for me is i've been able to say you know what man we're we're all you know gonna miss the mark because of so many of cultural differences and nuances. So everyone's got something to offer. And let me keep trying to grow and understand the original intent. Let me keep growing and trying to understand what God is trying to say. I think a lot of us have some near de deconversion moments. Mine happened in my early 20s. And uh, I just couldn't shake that. I thought, I think this is the most true stuff I've ever encountered in my life to date and would affirm that all these years later. What was it for you? 
that? Was there a, a moment or a, a sensation where you were like, yeah, that's why I didn't deconvert. That's why I didn't just keep walking down that road. Was there something that just, there was that Egypt thing, but was there a moment or a, a truth that just like pulled you back? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's seeing the consistency. So when you see the consistency of God staying with me, you know, just like, oh, wow, Jesus, Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's not transactional either. He's not snapping his fingers like, I'll fix it for you here. He's relational. He's saying, I'm going to walk with you through this. You know, I'm going to be here for you in this whole process. Um, I think we want transaction. We want a microwave solution um, for these profound moments. But, you know, our trials are meant to develop us. Temptation is meant to destroy us, but the trials are meant to develop us. And so I, I think it was realizing I was being developed. I think it was being okay with that and saying, I don't have a better solution. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, if, if I'm, the, the real issue for me narrowed down to, I do believe I'm valuable. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to be honest with myself, I cannot treat myself to a steak dinner and, dis- and tell myself that I'm so wonderful and I, d- I can't, if I believe I'm a cosmic accident and just a bunch of atoms and cells, there's no reason to stand up for the rights of people. There's no reason. We don't matter. There's no purpose. We're just cells and atoms. We are nothing more than gra- blades of grass. And if that's the case, then why do I want purpose when I wake up? Why do I feel like I need to, sh- to, to, to take care of things? And so that's what really got me was I believe I have purpose. And if I have purpose, it was given to me by some, someone greater than myself. And that really was like, all right, I, I can't reconcile that. So it's <laughs> got to be God. Thanks for being so open, transparent. And uh, I mean, you continue to make music. You got a new album. You got a new book. So tell us what you're up to and where we can find all things Lecrae. Yeah, um, Lecrae.com. Uh, the album is is Restoration. Um, it is it is due out uh, this month in August. Uh, the album is I Am Restored. Uh, I mean, the uh, book is I Am Restored. Um, which is uh, obviously out in October. Um, a documentary will precede the album. And I am really in literally the best season of my life. Mm-hmm. And it's not because everything's going my way. It's not because the pandemic somehow is not at my doorstep. Um, it is because I have healthy mechanisms of dealing with the circumstances around me and a healthy vantage point uh, to, to look at everything from, so. Well, thanks for saying yes to the invitation, Lecrae. And uh, I, uh, I've really enjoyed this time with you. Thank you for being so transparent, open, honest. And uh, we're all on a similar journey. It may not be full of Grammys, but as leaders, uh, yeah, we know what that's like to be in some spotlight, big or small, and have all the pressures of, trying to keep it together. So hopefully this won't be the last time we have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
so grateful for that conversation. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where leadership is hard, but the spotlight is hard. Uh, so much is difficult. But my prayer is that you come out of it on the other side a lot better. And that's what Lecrae has done. Uh, his brand new book is out today. You can get everything, including all the links at kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 371. We've even got transcripts for you there. And uh, we do show notes uh, for all of these episodes. We're also on YouTube these days. So you can check out uh, that on YouTube as well. We have a, a small but growing following there. Uh, and if you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast, but you enjoy the episode, just do it and share it online as well. Hey, next episode, so excited that we have Pat Gelsinger and Scott Beck. It's not every day that you meet people who have done what this pair has done. Um, Pat is the CEO of VMware, which you may have heard of, and the first and former CTO of Intel Computers. He was involved in developing things like, oh, let's say USB and Wi-Fi. Yeah, it's not on my resume. I don't know about you. And Scott Beck, he scaled Blockbuster Video, Boston Market, Einstein Brothers Bagels, Ancestry.com, and both of them are involved as the founders of Glue. And they are going to talk about how Churches can use online technology and a brand new thing that uh, I'm partnering with them on called People Connect. Here's an excerpt from that episode. Imagine if I said to, you know, if you and I, Carrie says, we wanted to be able to reach 100,000 people. Let's go start by building the stadium church to go do so. You know, we only need to raise maybe a billion and a half dollars to go do so. Right? You know, that's nuts, that right? You know, nuts. you couldn't even dream of that business case. But to say, we're going to go reach, you know, 100,000 people online, Today, that's sort of like, okay, you know, let's, let's get our, uh, you know, uh, media put together. That'll take a week, you know, and let's go get it up on uh, Facebook and let's go start some promotional activities. Great. You know, let's go have 100,000 people participate in this service, right? You know, it's you know, the scale aspects that are possible now because, you know, everybody is connected. The cloud computing capacity is there to deliver it, right? Uh, you know, and the social networks are already assuming that that's the case. I love talking to leaders who have accomplished the kinds of things that Pat and Scott have, and that's a very rare resume. So that's up next time on the podcast. And also coming up, Andy Stanley's going to be on a couple of times. We have Rich Velotis. Uh, let's see, who else? Lisa Turkerst, um, Beth Moore, Mark Batterson, Bob Westfall. Um, yeah, Patrick Lencioni, Rachel Cruz, and so many others. I'm so excited for what's ahead. Subscribers, you get that all for free. And now it's time for what I am thinking about. And I have been thinking about our tone online. This segment is brought to you by the Being Challenge. The same people who brought you Red Letter Challenge will be happy to send you a complimentary copy of the Being Challenge. You can go to redletterchallenge.com forward slash being, request a free copy to be mailed to you. And if you want some good news for a change, check out the report on what's happening in the global church and mission work by going to icm.org forward slash growing global. That's icm.org forward slash growing global. So I am thinking about the tone online. Yeah, in the same way that the news is kind of depressing, so is my social feed these days. And we are, well, almost minutes away from an election, right? So what do you do about that? Um, here's my concern. And I just want to share this. For those of you who are faith leaders, and we know we have like all kinds of leaders listening, but I just want to say, you know, as someone who's uh, been a pastor, as somebody who is committed to faith and a person of faith, 
Um, I'm kind of concerned that Christians have been sucked into the nastiness, division, and partisanship along with everyone else. Often these days, Christians are providing an alternative to the anger and the outrage online. They're fueling it. And uh, that's a little bit concerning for me And because here's why. I think when Christians lose their mind, people lose their faith. Uh, people kind of forget. It's so easy to forget that even if you have 300 followers, right? If you start posting like raging conspiracy stuff or, you know, very partisan stuff, people kind of look at that and they may never say anything, but they kind of roll their eyes and they get an impression of you. And I think they sign off. And what I say to my team is, and we don't always get this right, but we try, right? Like whether it's this podcast or whether it's something I write on my website or my social media feed, I'm like, I want this to be a place where the good gathers on the internet, where reasonable people can gather and where we can have a conversation that, that hopefully isn't too inflamed. And here's a few things to think about influence. First of all, you know, for all of us who are online, which is pretty much all of us, um, influence takes years to build and seconds to lose. You see that when someone has an affair or does something illegal and all of a sudden, boom, you know, they're out of leadership. Um, but you can also lose influence just by saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And just a reminder, it takes years to build, seconds to lose. So think about that before you post. Uh, a lot of people are posting some very partisan things right now. And despite what you think, God is not a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Um, he transcends all of our political categories, however important they might be to us. And you wouldn't know that um, when you look at most people's social feed. Really respect Tim Keller. He's been on this podcast before. And uh, Tim has a very simple and profound answer on how Christians fit into a two-party system. They don't. They don't. And uh, we'll link in the show notes to my interview with Tim Keller. You can watch it. I think it's got 100,000 views on YouTube. And um, well... I don't know, lots on, on the uh, audio podcast as well. But Tim has his, I think, his head screwed on really well when it comes to politics, culture, and sharing the gospel in a post-Christian America. So we'll link to that if you want to go deeper on that. And just remember this, I remind myself, because I have partisan views as well. If God has all the same opinions your political party does, you're probably not worshiping God. And then third thing I would say is church is an alternative to culture, not a reflection of it. We really should be the distinct option that is different from what people see around us. And I think that's what younger adults are looking for. They're actually not looking for you to be the Republican candidate endorser or the Democrat candidate endorser. They're looking for something different. And people don't want to know what you think is right. They want to know what's real. Uh, and nobody really finds life in your kingdom. They find life in Christ's kingdom. And if you can introduce them to that, I think good things can happen. So what can you do to be a more positive presence online? Uh, I would focus a little more on timeless truths than temporary viewpoints. That's what I try to do in these interviews, right? Like what I want to talk to Lecrae about or anyone else on this podcast is I want to talk to them about the stuff that we all struggle with, the deep stuff, the soul stuff. And hopefully when we get it right, we do that well. Other thing, before you post, sleep on it, pray about it. Uh, I have been tempted to post things that I know I would have regretted. And if I have a good night's sleep and I pray about it and maybe talk to a friend, guess what? I don't post them. Or if I post them, they turn out to be helpful. Uh, same if you're responding to somebody, right? You're like, oh, I'll get them with my words. Well, yeah, that's almost never a good impulse to act on. If Christians prayed as much as they talked, we'd have a different church. Here's another thing. There's a lot of shame and blame going on. Uh, what about confessing? What about just confessing what you've done rather than shaming someone else or blaming someone else 
for a problem. Jesus never asked us to confess the sins of our enemies. He told us to confess ours. And social media has become a lot of confessing the sins of our enemies. Uh, a couple of other ideas. Um, start real life relationships with people who are different than you, people who don't have the same skin color, people who don't maybe make the same income level or have the same education level or don't live in the same neighborhood that you do. Uh, if you really start to deal with real life relationships with people who are very different than you, I think you will gain more empathy. And then ask yourself five years from now, what will you wish you had done? Like, just don't post it, right? Like if you think, oh, five years from now, I'm going to be glad I did this. No, I don't think you will be. Um, so let's try to create space for the good people to live on the internet. Let's try to be a, a source of promise rather than a source of pain and a place of hope uh, rather than a whole bunch of hype or hate. So I hope that's helpful. I've got a written version of this over on my website at kerryneuhoff.com. And by the way, we're serving, uh, well, almost 75,000 leaders these days uh, with a little daily email that we send out. And if you would like to receive it, you can head on over to kerryneuhoff.com and subscribe. Listen, thank you so much for listening. So appreciate you guys. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.